Good afternoon, everybody. Just looking around for familiar faces. I don't know many people. Uh, you might remember me. I was here eight years ago uh, and went to Norway. Just got back. Uh, so welcome to Amravati. And I've been invited to give a talk this afternoon. My name's Ajahn Kalyano. Invited to give a talk this afternoon, uh, the topic of which wasn't chosen by me. So I got here just before the Vasa and uh, they have a list of topics. Uh, so there were only two left, and this was one of them. So, so it's like that, a bit of a lottery. But actually, interesting topic. So, <clears throat> so I ought to be quite well qualified for this because I was both a psychologist and physiotherapist when I was a layman. So studied the mind, studied the body, studied this animal body, and studied this mind, both. And then tried to see how the two interacted. I was very interested in the place of the body in the practice. I started with Tai Chi. When I first started meditating, I couldn't sit still, I was too young. so to move and to have this biofeedback of knowing that I'd lost the movement was really, really helpful. Uh, but actually, what I didn't realize at that time is that the practice can go very deep if you include the body. So for many people these days, uh, Buddhist practice is all about the mind. They don't necessarily consider the body to be an integral part of the practice trying to get their heads together or trying to relate to their emotions. Although, of course, the emotions are coming from the body, isn't it, from feeling. So, um, but the practice can go very deep when you include the body, as you were recommended to by the Buddha, isn't it? The four foundations of mindfulness begins with the body and then moves on from there. And if you look in the suttas, it can be a bit of an intimidating-looking practice, so going right the way inside and looking at what's inside can be quite intimidating. Not for me, because I had a kind of medical training, I got used to it. But for some people, very intimidating. And it's not that I'm necessarily advocating that, to make that clear at the beginning. I'm not advocating that kind of practice. I'm more advocating the kind that I started with, which is to include Tai Chi, or actually Tai Chi is my central practice. Or something like that in order to bring the mind more fully into the body and see what happens. Because uh, the most interesting part of this question, you see, or the title, uh, with an animal body, with the mind of a god, uh, it's a contrast, isn't it? You see a contrast between an animal body, which you might take that as derogatory, I don't think it's meant in a derogatory way, and the mind of a god. There's a con big contrast there, isn't there? whether you'd actually believe that we can have a mind of a god or our mind can be godlike in some way. So we, we begin often, isn't it, when a question like this strikes us, a topic like this, to think about it and have different views. There's lots of different views in the world today on these issues, isn't there? So uh, some people, you know, science is very big these days, everyone believes in science. Isn't it sensible to believe in science? Uh, so then people can believe that they're just the body, 
were all biological robots running around on a rock flying through space, and this kind of view of humanity. Uh, or you can have the other extreme. Uh, people, people who come here and more alternative people who are looking to poke a hole in that view and to see the potential of the mind. So this is what the, this word God, or notice it's God with a small g, right? so it's not you know, God with a big g and creating everything and in control and knowing everything. It's God with a small g. I'll come on to what, that, what Buddhism would mean by that as we go along. Maybe Deva is the word in the scriptures for that, or Brahma. So other people would believe that our minds are much more powerful than we would realize. And certainly through meditation, you can begin to encounter this power of mind as you develop sati, mindfulness in the present. You begin to realize that that has a lot of power to it, strength to it. Uh, particularly in the concentration meditation, you're developing a kind of strength of mindfulness. Powerful mindfulness, penetrative mindfulness. And all kinds of things can come out of that. But the most interesting part of this question is how these two relate. Now here we are, are we in a predicament where we've got this God-like mind, at least, or a a mind that's more than an animal mind in the sense that we can understand and control what's going on around us. We understand a lot about the universe, don't we? Uh, makes us look quite godlike. Uh, and then there's the animal side, which we shouldn't be too derogatory about, is it? I mean, animals are nice, aren't they? Very sensitive creatures and not stupid. Uh, so we have access to a body which has its own intelligence, actually, uh, that we block out, tend to block out through thinking. So when the tsunami hit in Phuket all those years ago, that terrible tragedy, then a lot of humans died, but all the buffalo, apparently, who were in the area sensed it coming and were well out of the way. Uh, in that sense, the animals are a bit cleverer than we were, isn't it? So. But you get the idea of the question, you know, this contrast. And then these two things, a seemingly immaterial thing and a material thing, how do they relate to each other? Nowadays, I mean, Buddhism, uh, and also in psychology, modern psychology, cognitive psychology, they're saying that all mental phenomena are dependent upon the body in some way or another. So everything we think is dependent on having a body. And that's a big change from this, what you might call a Descartian position, this dualistic position, where there's two distinct things, the spiritual mind and the, and the, and the body, the fleshy body. So this title can seem very Descartian, dualistic. The dualism in, in science is out of all the evidence that thinking, which is the thing that can seem most like the mind, it depends on the body in, very, in all kinds of ways. And, uh, actually, the Buddha, uh, not, not going through a scientific 
route of inquiry, but through the meditative route of inquiry, would also actually agree that all thought depends on the body being present in the mind. So there's an interesting parallel there. So if, uh, say, you're meditating, your mind goes very deep and lets go of the things of the senses, it's called samadhi, and you only experience this kind of blissful, bright, light experience, beautiful, wonderful, uh, no body, all gone. And in that experience, then you can't think. Impossible. Ah, interesting. So we come to the same, we come at the same place from a very different route. Uh, that we see the Buddha saying that the mind is dependent on having an experience of the body in the mind in order to be able to think. Uh, so if you have that kind of experience, and you come out of that kind of experience, you're in this big kind of big bubble of bright light, just like that. Then you realize that when the things of the senses come back, you begin to be able to think, uh, just the same as before. But the mental proliferation, all the automatic thinking that seems to come from the body, still doesn't come back for a while. It's a kind of step-by-step step coming back out of an experience like that. And that's hugely revealing uh, to this relationship between mind and body, or at least our subjective sense of it. So you've moved now, haven't we, from an objective discussion of what the situation is from an objective philosophical or scientific point of view, and we've got to a kind of more subjective point of view and what we can actually experience, which is what we're trying to get to as Buddhists, is a subjective experience of this, some kind of evidence uh, that the Buddha was correct about the relationship between mind and body. And this is what we can find if we can withdraw the mind from the senses, drop the body. The first thing we find is that the proliferating mind disappears, when we come out of that state, that the space is still there. Uh, but then, as we go on with our lives, that space will tend to crumble and deteriorate, and go back to, we go back to normal. Um, and the proliferating mind will start again. So any desire arises in the mind. It kicks off that little automatic pilot inside, which is, which is tuned in to, to all the pleasures out there, looking for pleasure, looking to avoid displeasure, this kind of automatic pilot that we have chattering away to us all the time. But we find that if we think wisely, uh, then the mind will stay empty, stay inside. So this is what the Buddha is recommending. And the Buddha goes on there to, just to begin to describe birth as the process of coming out of the inside. You, you, the mind goes out from the inside, this beautiful bright space inside, into the world. That's birth. So we, this is the, in psychological terms or in the term moment by moment terms and the life that we're living, that's birth. Hmm. So we have a choice to stay with this bright, blissful feeling or to go out into the world. It's not a difficult one if you experienced or are experiencing that bright, blissful feeling. But if you haven't, uh, then it's another thing altogether. Now, this is where uh, these samadhi experience is so clarifying to the Buddha's teaching. Is there, 
clears the whole thing up. But for so many of us, you know, we, we need to look for an experience that's more reachable. It's very rare, this, this blissful experience is quite a rare one. You have to practice very, very hard for it. Uh, but we can find, and what I found when I was just a junior monk, for example, uh, as I came out of a meditation retreat, a good, good meditation retreat, mine was quite strong, and then uh, the same day I slipped a disc. Ouch. Right? Now, there's the animal body. <laughs> yeah, really, uh, I was in agony for two weeks, couldn't sleep for two weeks. It was that bad. But there was a quality of mind that I developed during that meditation, that was a month meditation, during that month of meditation, which was not affected by that pain. So that gave me tremendous faith that uh, even before that experience of samadhi, uh, then you can find a quality of mind that is stable, uh, no matter what happens with the body. So again, more recent years, I had a heart incident. I, I found myself in a situation where my heartbeat was going 260 a minute, this was quite high, and uh, I had to you know, in the ambulance with the paramedic, and she was saying to me, and I was a trained physio, and she's saying to me, do you have any pain in the head? <laughs> so I'm thinking, well, she's asking me, so are you having a stroke? <laughs> and I said, do you have any pain in the chest? And she's asking me, are you uh, having a heart attack? <laughs> Uh, but uh, my mind was completely actually stable and lying, lying there quite calmly through the whole thing uh, which you can do if you can access this quality of mind stable quality of mind so this has given me a tremendous incentive having worked in hospitals before and seeing a, a lot of suffering then I thought I've really found something uh, that could help people. And I quit my job as a physiotherapist. Is why well, I quit my job as a physiotherapist and ended up wrapped in a brown sheet like this. Because it just seemed to have so much potential. And you might say that this is God with a little G, you know, this stability of mind, you know, which can then as you develop it, it can, you get a sense for the quality of it, you know, that this brightness and stillness inside, that this is God with a little g. Actually, we all have this inside, and the Buddha's teaching is saying that we all have this inside. If we can get back inside, it's there for all of us. But our minds are just too busy running around in the world. Even when we close our eyes and try and meditate, and mind's still running around out there somewhere after something or attached to something. So there's a process of trying to break our attachments in order to be able to let go of the world and to come inside and to have this experience, which will then change our lives. You know, we can sort of realize that there's something far more beautiful inside than anything outside. Yeah? then this changes our lives, changes our, all our priorities in life and gives us a refuge. So it's not the thinking mind, but this emptiness of mind, which uh, you could say is a kind of a Buddhist understanding of what the spirit would be, uh, citta. In, 
this uh, bright, empty mind. And then the ultimate in Buddhism, you know, where it all comes together, is where you bring that empty mind and the body together into a single experience. Let go of the body. This is the final step. And so the, the early years of practice can be a matter of trying to become more aware of the body in very simple ways, pleasant ways. Uh, tai Chi, for example. Yeah. We're developing a high degree of mindfulness and learning how to, to spread your goodwill to your body. You can feel great, you know, spreading metta to the body. Uh, you can feel really good on that. You know, so mind finds its way in, a benevolent mind finds its way into the body. So the healing potential, and Tai Chi or Qigong practitioners can become healers even. Uh, so there's this kind of potential at the beginning. And then, isn't, then we just follow that, and, and just follow ordinary awareness of the body and see where it goes. And for me, I, mean, I got so interested in this, I decided to do left psychology. I decided to do physiotherapy to find out about the body and did anatomy and studied anatomy for a whole year and, and uh, really got involved in it. It changed my whole perspective on life. I found another example would be when I was living in Norway, I got a phone call from a friend of mine whose father was dying of cancer in a hospice. And, uh, Unfortunately, we were just too late to arrive. He died about 20 minutes before we got there. But I arrived with a family in pieces around this man who'd just gone of cancer. And again, I found this mysterious quality of mind was a refuge also in that situation. I wasn't bothered with it. I wasn't upset by it. Now, there was compassion in the mind, an ability to help, I was, but I wasn't thrown by what I was witnessing. So this is all good evidence, isn't it, that there is an aspect of mind that is more independent of this animal body and its sickness and old age, sickness and death. Experiential evidence. With all the theories we can get into, there's a lot of this now in the neuropsychology and, and uh, all kinds of theories about the interaction between mind and body. Uh, and I have studied this, but, it, but it's interesting how study and how views and ideas don't really sustain you when the chips are down. You know, what really sustains you is an experience, not an idea. It isn't really a refuge in an idea or a theory or a view. To have the idea that that consciousness is is all powerful or or permanent or it doesn't help. What helps is to have some kind of stable experience in the mind. That's what helps. So I said that all much more quickly than I thought I would. <laughs> How are you going so far? Mm. 
Perhaps we can meditate a little bit at this point. So, so looking for an experience. Uh, so if you want to close your eyes and go to the breath. Put this uh, all this theory into operation then with this exercise of watching the breath coming in and out. It's a very ethereal thing, the breath, isn't it? Refined thing. Trying to get a sense of that throughout the whole body, breathing in, breathing out. Extremely peaceful. And we can play with the breath, can't we? So we have an automatic process going on here. Uh, just go on on its own. If we just if we let it, just be aware of it. But there's also a process we can join in with. So we can decide to breathe shallow or we can decide to take a deep breath, very energizing. Or breathe very shallow, very calming. Now, if we become concentrated, it's as if the mind becomes conjoined with that breath, one with it. And we're breathing the mind into the body as we breathe in. All this purity of mind, space of mind, we're breathing space into the body. You think of breathing in as breathing space into the body. I just keep relaxing into that. So this godlike mind can become part of this breath. And you can draw that godlike mind with its kindness into the body, into this animal body. See what happens. I can imagine what might happen, isn't it? Imagine a stream of light coming into the body. Uh, centered around the heart area. What that would be like. This stable, bright mind 
there in the center of our experience. And encompassing the other experiences of the body, the feelings and the elements of the body. This is a good way of finding the body, the real, the real body, so to speak, is uh, elements, earth, air, fire, water. But it says we can experience the body like that, just in terms of these four, the wateriness of it, the solidity of it. The air coming in and out is the main one we're looking at. And the warmth of it, fire element, We can get to this, then the body will seem like it's a lump of nature uh, sat on the cushion. And the mouth, there is a mouth, can be very good to contact the different elements, the hard teeth, the watery saliva, the warmth of it, the cavity of the mouth, it's all there, very clear. Naturally interesting part of the body, because it's, it's like a piece of the inside that we can become aware of, first part, and very neutral. To gather the brightness of the mind around that area, around the mouth area, and it can be that one day, if not right now, then an image will appear in your mind of the mouth. There are nice bright shining teeth, shining with the light of the mind. Just like the Colgate advertisements. Now right here is the beginning of the practice, where we first become aware of the body. And then it can be also there the culmination of the practice, where the mind becomes very pure and bright. And we see that the mind of God, if you like, and the animal body are separate things in our experience. All fear disappears. I fear we didn't realise we had. I mean, how many people sitting here think that they're afraid of the body or anxious with regards to the body? But actually, the body or having a body can be a constant source of anxiety in our minds. We know our own vulnerability, really, somewhere down in the guts. We know that. So it can be a tremendously liberating feeling to become aware of these two together and seeing them as not the same thing. Ajahn Chah talked about this like having water and oil in a bottle and you shake up the bottle uh, and you realise that the two can't mix. The, the oil remains separate, goes into little droplets and then settles again and the two separate out. So a different nature.
So it can be with this emptiness of mind. We can find that emptiness of mind and the body as separate things, completely separate. And the thinking and feeling somewhere quite in between there. Whereas the body is present in the mind, then thinking and feeling can take place. If the body's not present in the mind, then thinking and feeling won't take place. So we see the way these two are bound together. You see with the thinking mind how there's also an automatic process going on, just like there is with the body, an automatic thinking going on. And then there's deliberate thought we can add in the present moment. May I be well and happy, perhaps, can add in the present moment. We know that this automatic mind, the proliferating one, and this is completely caught up with the body. Whereas the other one is less so. And the kind of perspective that we gain. or depends or hinges on getting a, a sense for the mind itself, like the mind watching the mind, or awareness being aware of itself, or being aware of awareness. So if you develop your mindfulness in meditation strong enough, you can become aware of being aware. Which is probably the first way that we experience this kind of mind. Sense of presence. Presence of mind. If that develops to the point where there is some brightness in the mind, then we can do all kinds of things with this. And this is where Tai Chi is, and this concept of Chi. And to us, this is what Samadhi is, and this energy that you can spread around the body. If the mind's benevolent, then it'll be benevolent, that energy. First of all, probably we'll have a feeling, a feeling of peacefulness that we can spread around with our peaceful mind. So this exercise then of bringing mind and body together is what the Buddha is encouraging us to do. Bring them together like oil and water and then see that they're not the same thing. And letting go just happens automatically. It's already happened as soon as we've seen that the two are separate things. 
So you're never trying to get rid of the body or get out of the body. All we're doing is seeing it as not us. This body is not me. See it sat there in the bubble of the mind. I introduced to another interesting kind of meditation the other day, which I'd never tried before, where someone led us in a, uh, imagining that we were animals. It's quite relevant to this topic, isn't it? So saying, well, just if, think of an animal and then try and imagine yourself to be that animal. You know, feel your way into being that animal. That's a very interesting phrase, isn't it? Feel your way into that. Uh, being a lion or a tiger or an elephant. Uh, can you feel your way into that? That's a very fashionable kind of meditation these days, actually. Everybody chooses the big, powerful animals. Uh, it's a sense of empowerment comes out of it. You know, the clever animal, the fox, or the big, powerful one. Actually, for some reason, decided that I wanted to be a snail, you know, just small and humble and, you know, shell to crawl into and trouble. Uh -huh. I found that incredibly difficult, trying to do that. How do I feel my way into being a snail? Mmm. Uh, there's a kind of gooey bit, isn't there? I could get, get the kind of gooey, slippy part. Mm. And the back a bit like the shell. Didn't get very far, but but it was a very interesting exercise because I came out of that meditation thinking, well, to what degree have I felt my way into being a human being? Hmm? How much can I really do that in the same way? Sometimes you discover something by trying to do something else, isn't it? You try to do something very playful, hmm? and you discover something very meaningful. So it became a new aspect to my mindfulness of the body, the sense of feeling my way into being a human being. It's like this. This is what it's like. Sensing this animal body with this mind that seems to arise out of these things, so not denying that the mind arises out of the body or dependent on the body. But it's seen, it's felt as completely different experience, consciousness. So in the Buddha's teachings, consciousness or vijnana, sense consciousness arises dependent upon 
body and mind coming together, nama rupa. Or the way that we experience or think about or have a view of body and mind. The other way around is also true that body and mind are dependent upon consciousness. So uh, mutual dependence. If you continue to practice like this, uh, and then a whole new relationship develops between you and your body, or your mind and your body, you can have a different attitude towards the body. Yeah, so, uh, for example, you know, when I go for a walk, you know, for me, so it's like I'm taking my body for a walk, like it's taking the dog for a walk. You, know. you, you can put my coat on, it's a bit like putting the lead on the dog, and take it off for a run down the park, you know. You recognise that the body's getting a bit kind of restless, or, uh, oh, I need to walk, okay, off we go. Or, uh, taking, taking a shower becomes washing the body, oh, doesn't it? It's not taking a shower anymore. Uh, so I went to the zoo once and saw they were washing ping penguins down with this big hose. Uh, so he's going to the shower and think of the penguins being you know, like being like washing the penguins, like washing the bodies, washing the bodies of the penguins. Like a zookeeper washing the penguins. Hmm. He has to feel like that. And it has this kind of light quality about it, playful quality about it. I find myself bursting out laughing because when I'm eating my meal, for example, thinking that the thinking that the mouth is like a, some kind of cement mixer or something. The way that it chews, you know, the way food goes round it, ka-chunk, 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 ka-chunk. So hearing the cement mixer out here, uh, and this, all these rocks going round this big thing, ka-chunk, 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 while I was eating my meal, I started giggling about it. Uh, so those perceptions change. I found myself in a shower looking down at my legs, uh, hairy legs, you know, and it looked like my, it's, I was bending over, so, my, so it looked like my feet were actually above my head as I was, up, so my head was upside down, I forget, what, I forget my meaning. So the whole perception of the body starts to change and where we are in space. We're not, not forming a view anymore of what the body is through thinking. Uh, so it was all the, all the kind of neuroticism went over my appearance. And not that I had a lot of that. I'm lucky I'm not, I'm not uh, pretty and young anymore anyway. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, but I was just developing a tremendous sense of lightness. And so you, you think of this in a light coming into the body, and then it, this is how it can ultimately affect us. This, uh, this kind of lightness coming into our mind around the things of the body. Delicious, delicious. Uh, because it was particularly because it was a complete antidote to all the anxiety that I developed working in hospitals for 15 years and seeing people in dire straits. So now I can approach those situations with a kind of lightness. It doesn't, it doesn't phase me. Yet there's still compassion there, still wanting to help. So this is a mind is relating to the world through wisdom and compassion rather than through sensuality. Now sensuality will tend to fade, or be rather more optional, let's say. Uh, particular perception on a particular occasion. And so you notice already that you know, we can have this, a doctor, you know, a gynaecologist, you know, has to have a different sort of glasses, doesn't he? You know, when he's examining his patients. You know, has to look, look in a very scientific way, not a sensual way, isn't it? That's what you, you can do that. Uh, so it can be that you can develop an awareness like this and it becomes just a different your spiritual glasses that you put on. Uh, you can be living a perfectly ordinary life. So I'm trying to, you might get the idea I'm trying to persuade you and I am a bit. You know, so trying to hope that a few people can walk out of here and really see the value of having the body as part of their spiritual practice, including it, and investigating it, investigating the relationship between the mind and the body. So I just found it so fruitful, I've benefited so much from it. I think that this is an offering to the world. So I was involved with hospital chaplaincy in Norway, trying to develop a hospital chaplaincy program uh, to involve people who had trained in order to uh, be okay in that kind of circumstance, and to be able to really be with people who are very seriously ill or dying. But just in daily life, you know, this has given me a much more, much more of a lightness of step, a lightness of life. So if you see, I've had my problems over the last years, are back problems and now heart problems. So it's not dragging me down. And my doctor told me, so most people that have, most people that get the heart problem you've had, they get depressed. Oh. <laughs> uh, I feel I'm protected from that through the practice. Well, some have got a refuge inside. And yet this thing is, a, uh, this brightness looks on at the animal with, 
with compassion, not with judgment, or not looking down on something. Not looking down on the body. And actually the center of it is inside the body. And then the heart area is where it lives. Uh, subjective experience. So for some meditators, when they get more advanced, then uh, they will experience this. And they have what happened when their mind withdraws from the senses is that they'll experience this big bright light experience centered at the heart. You know, other people, that big bright light experience will illuminate the body from the inside, which is an extraordinary experience. Uh, don't ask me how that happens. Uh, it's possible, you, know, you can see your body as if it's lit up from the inside. Uh, you don't see it in a scary way, you see it like it's like a stained glass window actually. So much light pouring through it. Pouring through that animal body. So there's nothing to fear here, but this practice, if you go, if anyone considers going inside or you know, looking inside the body, and I would seriously suggest that you should have a teacher. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> you should have a teacher to guide you. Is there? Very important for this not to make you negative about the body, which of course it could. It could make you depressed even to see the nature of the body and the mort its mortality. So mind needs to be protected from that when you investigate like this. And the, the primary thing or the first thing that's recommended to protect the mind is loving kindness. And so you only ever go inside with a mind that's full of kindness, with a kind attitude, a loving attitude, then your mind will be protected from a negative view of the body. This is not what we're looking for. But there's quite an art here in choosing how to do this and knowing when you're ready to do this. Uh, but of course, it can be something that's forced upon us, isn't it? Like it's forced upon me. I was at college and I had to go there, I had to study the anatomy. But we can choose to do this to the degree to which we go as far as we want to go. We go as far as we can remain with a neutral view, and not feel averse or what's in there. Or it can be that we just decide that we're going to go mindfully to the toilet, isn't it? We've got that one every day, you know, it's a sort of an animal thing. We all go poo every day. Interesting how we how we what we how we say this, you know, like it's, we'll call it number twos, don't we, or you or you're going to go and do your business or something. You know, these phrases around it, which are a bit ridiculous in a way. And the locked cubicles that we go into, hide in. There's something that's hidden. That's something that happens every day, isn't it? 
part of our lives. It's kind of animal part, the animal moment. You might say the animal, best animal moment of the day. Uh, the man who's walking his dog encountered the other day. His dog had a poo, and he said, "Oh, here we go, the main event." I mean, the main event of our day. Kind of, for elderly people. You get to a certain age, you know, people can start getting worried about their bowels, isn't it? You're in old people's homes, you know, these old people saying to each other, have you been, have you been today, dear? <laughs> it gets like that, doesn't it? And then there's some acceptance, isn't there? Oh. Or maybe with all gender, I've just thought of this actually, maybe with all gender toilets. Isn't it? We have people who have man man in a cubicle next to a woman. How that's how's that going to be for us? You know, we, we kept this kind of mystique going all these years. You know, women going one door, the blokes going another one. It's going to break down some kind of weird mystique uh, to do with se- sense of sexuality. Or do women really go to the loo? Do <laughs> women really poo? It's a very grounding, right? It gets your feet on the ground. And so this animal body and mind of God can be like your feet on the ground, head in heaven, it can become like that. If we get it right. Yeah, both very useful qualities. Having your feet on the ground is so enduring, stabilizing, steadying, firming, isn't it? Having your head in heaven is so enjoyable. Uh, it can be blissful, wonderful. Uh, freedom, that's a freedom. Liberation. So I think I've said enough. So it's over to you then, and uh, question time. Yes. Do you want the mic on? Can you hear me? Right. Um, so it's with reference to animals. What would the meditator do if, um, in meditation, she was experiencing herself as an animal or an animal in the presence of an animal and the animal was not nice? So it was like quite a um, disper- disturbing experience. So. Um, are there some practices that you can use to sort of help? Um, I mean, I've three marks of existence, meta. 
Okay, so the question is, uh, if I get it clear, that if you have a disturbing experience uh, with relation to this, that you imagine yourself now to, an, to be an animal and that's an uncomfortable or difficult situation. Mm. Okay, yeah. Um, <coughs> I guess the people that teach these kinds of methods, uh, they're out to foster a very positive atmosphere to begin with. And then uh, to go into these kind of practices with always with metta, as I was describing at the, towards the end of the talk there, that, that uh, to go into these kind of practices with kindness uh, already there is your protection uh, from a view, from negative view of the body or a negative experience. So if something negative were to happen, then your reaction, if there's metta already there in the mind, will be a kind reaction. They're also seeing that that thing, or that, if if you're not grasping after that experience, it, then it will tend to go away, isn't it? Okay. So the other kind of the other caution is that if something comes which is extremely pleasant, and you're absorbing into and grasping after that experience, and you get lost in it, this is very quite rare actually. Uh, but in that case, then yes, you would be looking at that experience is impermanent, you see its impermanent nature so that it doesn't grab you and draw you in. But that's more, that's more the reaction of greed or sensual reaction rather than averse reaction or fright or fear. So you know, with fear uh, then you need metta, uh, with pleasure then you need to get perspective on that pleasure as being impermanent, otherwise you can get lost in an experience. Uh, I tried something yesterday evening in here where, um, you know, the practice where you focus on sensation, changing, going through the body. Um, so then experiencing no self, uh, so disappearing. Um, and that, I'm wondering whether could help in that scenario again, like to, di to disappear and like, well, that was a frightening experience. <coughs> it's no, I like uh, the experience to to experience the no self in meditation. But mm. um, I'm wondering if that's something that could be used, like if that scenario happened where something very disturbing, and then can you bring that into practice with along with the metta to sort of I don't know to distance from that. More difficult, or yeah. more difficult than going in with something. If you're going in with metta, you have your protection already there. Mm. But yes, if you, you can contemplate the situation also in uh, those three ways, isn't it something being impermanent or unsatisfactory or not self? Yeah. So if you if you examine feeling and you get this feeling of this. The sense of self disappearing, what that's telling you is that your mind previously was identifying with feeling, and then you come to your feeling, oh, no, that's not me, it's just feeling. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Same with the body, right? You, you come to the body, and there can be this sense of self about around the body, but then you start going around and you go to your teeth and something, and 
it's in immediate sense is me. But then he might see more clearly, oh, that's his teeth, isn't it? It's my teeth, my teeth, am I, am I my teeth? Or am I this or that? And their sense of self can disappear from, from this, that aspect like that. Taking that into everyday life. So, no, so yeah, that's interesting. Thank you. Uh, this lady helps to run a meditation group in Bradford on Avon, incidentally, just to give her a plug. <laughs> Ever in that area. Yes, please. Oh, thanks for your talk, Ajahn. Um, <clears throat> I just wanted to go back to the beginning of the talk, if I could, and uh, just clarify. I think you said um, the Buddha talked about being born a little bit like being unborn. So us coming into the world is sort of getting away from this um, type of consciousness. I think you were talking about and explaining it as a state of samadhi. Um, am I correct? And, and that's what and that's what you said. Um, and if so, oh, get, getting born is going back into the senses. That's right, going into. So being a, so, so you, there you are in, in your your bright space, and then coming out into the senses. Then the mind's being reborn in in a sense. So he's drawing a parallel there between our day to day, moment by moment experience and the experience of rebirth. And so, um, where the Buddha talks about this, where would I, where would one find uh, passages that he explained that he? Um, okay, there's so many. There's many suttas on this. You read the Tripitaka, but the best commentator that brings it to bring all this together is uh, the late Lumpur Buddha Dasa, who was the first in Thailand actually to talk uh, in this way. Of, in an Asian Buddhist tradition, then talk of rebirth is extremely ordinary and common. Um, but the talk of this, seeing a mechanism of rebirth actually in your life now, that's much less common. So he was the first to introduce this kind of teaching into Thailand. Thank you very much. Uh, there's a book of his, I think, uh, Under the Bodhi Tree. Come on, don't be too shy. Yes, do you want the mic? Thank you very much for your uh, 
Dharma talk. And um, I have a question about, did you said something about um, it's not pain, it needed going with the body pain and understand the mind. There is there any way around? <laughs> I mean, the <laughs> without uh, experiencing the pain, you mean? Yes, the pain body, yes. Uh, yeah, so I was talking about an extreme example, I guess, that, you know, having that stable state and then experiencing something as traumatic as a, as a disc prolapse, slip disc, uh, then I saw very clearly, as the pain was so strong, I saw clearly the aspect of mind that could be with that and not be affected by it. Uh, but it doesn't mean that that doesn't apply to just any other situation where your mind can become much more stable in relation to feeling just uh, normal, everyday comfort or discomfort. You can see how when you, the more you become aware of the body, the less you have a need for comfort, the more, able, the more you're able to tolerate discomfort. And that can be a great release already. I mean, you're learning something, isn't it? And also, how much time do we spend trying to become comfortable, organizing our lives around being comfortable? Uh, it can be tremendously freeing to be more tolerant of discomfort. Uh, so, practicing with the little things, and then you know, maybe one day something big will come along. Stability of mind is so important, isn't it, for mindfulness and to be able to act in a skillful way and have skillful responses to life. And the main thing that throws us off of that is either pleasant or painful feeling. We were automatically going for the pleasant and automatically withdrawing from the painful, whether that's really the right thing to do at that moment or not. And so this kind of practice can really stabilise us to be able to experience those things and then make a conscious choice in the face of those experiences, whether it's pleasure or pain. And the body is like an anchor for us like that. You think of the senses pulling us around. You know, the Buddha said it's a bit like having, having a whole set of animals tied to us and all going in different directions pulling us in different directions. Our eyes are pulling us in one direction, the ears are pulling us in another direction. Uh, and the body is just kind of anchor, stabilizing anchor for all the reactions to the senses. Uh, like a, they can become a refuge when we get, when we get further inside. It's not all just about dealing with trouble either. This is, the thing with this is that it's all so enjoyable once you get to a certain point. There's so much joy in it. Um, so not to see this as just some kind of pro another problem-solving technique, but to see that there's some, you find there's a tremendous joy that can be found through this. Sense of freedom. Freedom from being tied down by the things of the body. Yeah, so I know your face. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's, uh, thank you very much for your talk, uh, wonderful talk. Uh, and I just uh, want to share rather than ask, because uh, I remember when I was a child, we were very much encouraged to um, be in the state of different animals. And I have been working with children as well in, in this country. And this uh, comes to mind as there is a release of energies that has been unknown to the body. And it's very practical, very useful. I think it's uh, to be encouraged. And because we learn through stories, obviously, uh, these little children who I've been working with, they, they haven't even met a wolf or a, a fox in real life, but they still can release a lot of fear or joy, as you mentioned. It's not only fear, of course, and uh, yeah, uh, that's what I wanted to share. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's called active imagination, is it? Is that what you're practicing? Active imagination. Anybody else? Funny, I thought there'd be lots of questions. I thought it'd have been quite challenging with the talk. Yes. Thanks for the talk. Um, I think what was really good about it was um, that you're redefining Buddhism. Because I always think when I come up the stairs there, you know, there's all of these, uh, how can I describe them respectfully? But there's always the people that have succeeded, the golden ones, like the golden Buddha behind you that was built after his death. There's People come into Buddhism <laughs> and have that, um, the wonderment, you know, the, the poetic side of mm. Buddhism. But what you had to face is, um, what most people only have to face towards the end, where you've had to go through that thing, can I still be a Buddhist without being perfect? I haven't got a perfect body. Uh. It's letting me down, you know the golden boy, the one who other people could look at and maybe could sit for a long time, you know, and, mm -hmm. and do that, and then all of a sudden, <laughs> and all of a sudden, life has hit you, you know? Mm. And, it, and, and when you were speaking about being in the present moment, it reminded me of, um, in Zen, there's Bankai, uh, unborn mind. He's had one question, if I already have Buddha nature, what am I playing at? Why am I trying to get it? And that was his, and that's more or less in that moment when it's all taken away from you, you know, uh, all, all uh, of the hopes and expectations, and you're just sitting uh, there in your hospital or wherever you are, uh, to just be in that moment. Mm. It's more important than being a great meditator, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. 
Yes, I mean, it's a case that, you know, Buddhism coming to the West has developed this kind of new age clothing quite a lot. Uh, uh, people really spacing out into it and floating around. And uh, you go out in the forest of Thailand, it's a very earthy thing. Where they're being challenged by nature the whole time with the ants and the heat and... Uh, uh, you know, I went to the dentist the other day and I said to I was telling someone on the way that they, when a forest might go through a dentist in Thailand, they don't give you an injection before they drill into your teeth because they think you can take anything if you're, <laughs> if you're a forest monk. Uh, the Western context gets quite comfortable, isn't it? And it becomes about you know, fancy ideas and, and it can lose the ground. And it's going to be nice to have your head in heaven like that. Uh, but but it's even better to have your feet on the ground as well. And then you, it's like they say in Tai Chi, you become like a connection between heaven and earth. And this is what I take the Buddha to and done when he, at his enlightenment, he's finding this kind of connection between heaven and earth. And he placed his finger on the ground. At the moment of his enlightenment, he didn't point up in the sky like it's, it's up there, it's up there. No, he pointed off down at the ground. And so the culmination of our practice isn't that blissful samadhi state. It's this coming to coming, bringing that state down to earth, or bringing that whole world down to earth through the body, earthing it, something like electricity, and come to something very cool and beautiful. A doctor over there. I see that the doctors must have good questions. I mean, if you're a first year medical student, you have to take a whole body apart, right? Yeah, they do it in England as well. It's a bizarre thing in the morgues when you walk in and they have the first year medical students doing their dissection competition. Uh, these these uh, bodies with just dissected to show all the veins or all the or something or other. Uh, it's strange. Very challenging thing to do. When I first went, I first went with my colleagues into this situation. We came out, and everybody but me went straight into the pub which is really where we can be at with this kind of level of practice with the body, isn't it? You know, it's interesting as well, you start giving a talk about this and you see people, a lot of people all of a sudden are starting to nod a little bit and look a bit dozy, people kind of phasing out. Actually, coming out of that session, I didn't go into the pub with my friends, I just walked down the street. And I found myself feeling my legs uh, under me, walking down the street. I just spent the whole afternoon playing with the, with the hamstrings on this specimen 
uh, because uh, so straining is a physio hamstring injuries are very common so you really want to know what the hamstrings feel like and where they go and know what, what, what's under the skin uh, so walking down this street and had this, suddenly had this image of my hamstrings working in the back of my leg and I thought the reaction was going to be horror actually not at all the opposite is a tremendous sense of peace. There's the first time the door opened for me. Yes. But just to emphasize, you know, that we, when we start off with practice, it's not necessarily about this. And you know, this is a this is way down the line. It can just be simply being aware of sitting, standing, walking. Yes, I know, sir. Hello. Hello. Um, yeah, so I'm sort of thinking from a Theravada perspective, rather than the body being an object of renunciation, being a path to enlightenment. So what made me think that I also do Tai Chi and I've been meditating for about 25, 30 years. And I've basically, I've come through Tai Chi and maybe yogic practices, realized my body internally is really blocked. So I can develop quite sort of through my meditation, I can, in the chair I can develop quite peaceful states of mind. But when I sit down, it's like my body's twisted. So it would seem... <laughs> the inverse of what a lot of people think is the path to enlightenment. Uh, and I'm, so I'm not quite sure if it's a question, but it, it, it's just through, like for instance, doing Qigong Tai Chi, I find it easier because I, my body is suitable to that, I do Kung Fu. Mm. Uh, rather than just trying to sit in and squeeze in meditation, it, it, it becomes, I've often found it quite conflicting because I'm sitting there trying to meditate. If I sit in a chair or walk, I've got a very peaceful mind. Mm. But then I sit down, it's like trying to, like trying to squeeze juice out of a raisin. You know, okay, <laughs> it's, it's yeah. never going to happen. So it's the inverse of what we're mm. conventionally be led to believe is path to enlightenment. Mm -hmm. And is that possible from, say, a Theravadan or particularly, or maybe a mm. Buddhist view? Yeah, generally. Yeah. Thank you. Well, a very simple answer to that question would be uh, in forests of Thailand there's two kinds of meditation done principally sitting meditation and walking and Ajahn Chah said well some people are going to be more suited to sitting some people more suited to walking simple as that so some monks would do principally walking meditation and then in order to develop a bit more strength of mind a focus then you're doing sitting so the, the benefit of sitting, sitting still, is to develop a kind of is to develop a strong focus. Some people, that's a difficult thing to do. Uh, so you're better to stick with what you're good at uh, and do a lot of uh, whatever body thing you're into. But but uh, to to get it as simple as walking meditation, just walking up and down, and be able to feel that the same as Tai Chi or Qi Kung or all these more exotic skills. You know, you're just going to very simple body awareness, walking, can mean that you can then integrate that refined awareness of the body into your daily life. You become a more embodied person. And sooner or later, 
you start to get drawn more towards the body and to, to the point where you can sit there and just be with it. But it took me quite a long time. I started with Tai Chi. It took me quite a long time to settle down. Uh, partly because, you know, these skills like Tai Chi are so energizing. <laughs> uh, but yes, people do get confused. Where they think, well, what are we doing here with Buddhism? Are we trying to get into the body or out of the body or what? Uh, uh, but essentially, the way out is in. Uh, the way beyond the body is to go into the body and then you see the two things as separate, the mind and the body. So if you're trying to get away from, that's not healthy. You know, trying to get away from the body. Uh, you're, trying to, you're not really trying to get into it, you're trying to become aware of it. And bring your awareness into the body. And this, this uh, pure silent awareness into the body. And sometimes there can be a block to that in your karma. You know, like when I first started meditating, I've been asthmatic. I was very asthmatic when I was from four to about 15. So when I first started watching my breath, I started getting very anxious because the only time I'd watched my breath before was when I thought I was going to have an asthma attack. So sometimes there's more direct attention to the body. There can be karma there blocking us from actually getting deep into that. If something's happened to us with our body, some trauma or something like that, then we're not really able to get in there. You know, we're kind of dissociated in some way. It's a very useful psychological term here, dissociation. People who have very heavy trauma physical trauma can end up dissociated from their body, like their body is somewhere else or something else. Uh, they can't feel very much, they're numbed. So there's a whole job there trying to get somebody who's dissociated back, living back in their body from being a bit somewhere else. Uh, a bit somewhere else from life. Never mind the body. So. So all this is things we need to work through. It's not that we're just bypassing all the work with the mind here. You know, we discover all the work we need to do as we get into the relation, this relationship between mind and body. Discover what's, what's there. And what, well, how do we really feel about this thing? This situation that we're in. If we go at it with no preconceptions whatsoever, it's like Lumpur Smedo says, you know, it's like this, just like that. Uh, having a human body, this is a human life, experiencing a human body is like this. An open mind. Anybody else? Nothing from the doctor. Oh, she's going to be shy. Nothing from the doctor. No. Okay. Yeah, I just always feel that 
are people who've done these kinds of things, nurses and doctors, are facing these kinds of things all day. Uh, it's always interesting that they don't have contemplative questions. I mean, the situation is that you're, you're in an extremely high, be pressured, responsible position. So you need to be able to step back a little bit from it in order to be able to really see what's, what's happening, isn't it? To, uh, sorry, uh, just to comment on what you um, just said, I, with this removing thing, um, I, I remember that I think that was like in the beginning of my second year during um, during med school when we were starting to um, to dissect the bodies. Um, it was it was a super fascinating process, but it, it really was, um, especially because during that time I. I don't think I was in contact with meditation or, or yoga or anything like that. So it, it immediately, at, at first there was fear when, uh, when, when you walked into that room and there was where those, those bodies covered with cloth so you wouldn't know what the face would be like that um, is underneath the cloth. Um, and then you open it and then you really work like that. You, you, at first you remove the skin and as soon, it, it, it takes very little um, to n not feel that the th corpse beneath you is, is human. So um, very soon this kind of, this is a human like me and this, this emotional aspect, at least for me, dropped and just scientific interest <laughs> was coming up. So it, it really, it, of course, it's a super fascinating and interesting process. But for me, I think that experience didn't really spark this, um, no. it didn't spark this uh, becoming aware of my own body. Mm. Thing. No, but actually a good preparation for it, because if you've, if you've begun to see in this scientific way and you've drawn in looking with curiosity, uh, then you overcome the aversion aspect. Uh, and if you're, if you're looking to help, then there's also meta involved. So you know, there can, there's another job to do for someone like you to really capitalize on that experience. Uh, you, but you can, uh, through meditation, you can you can capitalize on that and turn that, put a different set of spectacles on the same experience. Uh, and just looking at looking at extremely calm way, not trying to do anything. Just looking. And that can open you up to this whole thing. Or if you were to do a body practice like Tai Chi. Uh, then you, if you walk away like I do, you walk away from the situation, then you're acutely aware of your own body already. Then something can happen. So like many skills in Dhamma, you're, you're developing it on different fronts. And then sooner or later, all the different skills are piling together and you get some big result. 
as you do your sitting meditation, and walking meditation, uh, visualization, so on. And nothing special, it's just like a, dedica- a dedication that you need, faith, dedication. And sooner or later, these things come together. And so you have some of those skills already. Yeah, I, I also n- notice now that I that, that I do do profit from the from the knowledge and from yeah, I think I feel a little bit of that coming together. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a wonderful feeling where you can end up being a refuge for somebody else in distress as well. You know, somebody who's in a very difficult state, and you you can be there right with them and not disturbed by it. Thank you for your wonderful um, talk. Um, I actually guided the um, Buddhiana group on Wednesday. We have a lay group and we take turns. And there were some similar themes. We were um, we came to um, healing requires a wholeness. You know, not just being lost in fragmented parts of our experience or. If there's pain, not just getting lost in pain, becoming aware like of the ground, holding our experience, the space, and also of the non-pain, and sort of bringing in the pain into the wholeness. And we were, and we had quite interesting sharing about how different people had worked with um, pain. And in my own um, practice, I do a lot of qigong, and um, I really find that that has really deepened my understanding of Buddhism and helped my understanding and also of the energetic um, body and experience. And and I really have been curious on, you know, there are lots of people now that say you can heal everything with your mind, you know, the really kind of extreme stuff. And then there are doctors that are like, no, you can't, you know, you can't do that. And I think sometimes there maybe there is something in between. There are people <laughs> that do heal themselves, yes. and there, um, but then it, it's not always possible. And there is a time when we have to. And I've been, exper- been, been I've been sort of playing that in my own practice. And any pain that comes up, how much can I, can the metta and that light make a difference? Or when do you just come to a point of just going beyond, yeah, and being with pain and it not being a problem actually? Oh. Yeah. So I've been kind of playing with that. And I knew a doctor who specializes in cancer. And I said, has she ever met people that have healed themselves? Because you hear of these stories sometimes. And she said, no, never. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was interesting, because we do hear these anecdotal stories, don't we? Yeah. And she said that, um, and I said, had they, would she, did she know of any trials or anything? And she said that she felt it would be unethical to do any trial without medicine yeah. for her would be yeah. unethical. So I just thought it's an interesting, all these different views. Yeah. I don't know if you have anything to say about that. It was more of a sharing. Uh, no, it's very useful to bring that up. 
Now, talking about uh, the animal and God, isn't it? You know, can God heal the body? Uh, this God inside. <clears throat> uh, Buddha says, well, if, if, that, if our mind was like that, couldn't we tell our bodies never to have pain or not to get old or not to get sick in the first place? Uh, it's not possible. As a body is part of nature in the Buddha's teaching, not, not us, you know, not part of nature. This body is part of nature. You know. So it's true, we can't always heal. And it, you, know, you can balance these stories of people who, who do, the people who have healed themselves, you balance some of these stories of people who've tried and failed. It's a very miserable situation. If somebody convinces them that this is possible, they can do it, and they fail. What is it? Where are you, are you then? Uh, uh, so interestingly, I asked, asked what, uh, quite a great monk in Thailand about this who had a reputation for, for helping to heal people. So two, I lived with one monk who had had uh, kidney, the can, uh, cancer of the kidneys. I think that's right, yes. Um, and he was very sick indeed. And this monk taught him a certain meditation to do, and the cancer disappeared. So first of all, we see there that you know, the person who is looking for healing can need to have that skill already established. And it's the same with a woman I met in Bangkok who had breast cancer, who's very sick. She was taught a certain kind of meditation, and the cancer disappeared. But she was already an advanced meditator. Uh, and in the bigger picture, I think what the, the overall understanding in Asia um, that I've encountered is that if there's very strong karma involved, then it can be impossible to cure some for a person to cure themselves. Whereas if there is actually if there's some kind of mind involvement uh, in the present moment in the illness and what's going on, it's not a matter of what's happened in the past. It's a matter of what's going on now with the, the relationship between the mind and the body then there's enormously more potential for healing. It's quite obvious in a way. Is you think if, you, you know, if you'd contract cancer because you've been living next to a nuclear power station, uh, had a lot of karma in, <laughs> in your life, uh, then it'd be less likely that somebody can cure that because it's a, it's a physical cause. If there's any kind of mental cause involved, then it'd be much more likely. But of course, that can mean that people can go too far and say, all illness is mental. Uh, it's not true, is it? Otherwise, if, you know, anyone with a pure mind would live forever or never get sick. And of course, you know, the traditions have been playing on this for centuries, where the guru gets hidden away when they're sick. Uh, there's a monk, there's one monk in our tradition who claims never to get sick uh, through his meditation. It's not true. I've met, I know monks who nursed him with flu in his kuti. He's lying. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very uh, compelling thing, isn't it? You know, to think that you could cure yourself with a tremendous sense of power, then you're really God, aren't you? You really are. You know, God with a big G. But what a lot of responsibility you've got, isn't it? 
you think of that? If you've got with a big G, what a lot of responsibility you've got. <laughs> Maybe it's not such a great deal after all to, you know, to be running the universe. You know, bad enough running Amravati, however for Ajahn Amaro running around. What if you were God with a big G? Gosh, you know. What if, what if there was more than one God with a big G in the universe? Who's, whose universe is it going to be? <laughs> this one or that one? It's a recipe for chaos, isn't it? And for a kind of taking on of the world. You're taking the world on, you're taking the body on, rather than letting it go. You're taking the burden on, rather than letting it go. I came to that conclusion because I think sometimes, you know, there are times when people can heal themselves, it might be emotional, and at some time they deal with the emotions and then the problem clears, and sometimes it's... It is harder, calmer, and we need to learn to go beyond the body. And the thing about the responsibility, there's a Qigong teacher who charges a lot of money for healing. And um, people told me that, you know, oh, he's got a, a great, you know, he's great for healing people with cancer. But I discovered that his wife had actually died from cancer, you know, and uh. he's kept quite quiet. And so there must be, and I thought, well, I felt compassion for him because what a position to be in, to be that everybody thinks that you can heal them mm. and then and you, you couldn't save your, your, own, your wife. own wife yeah. who died. And, but there is also truth in, 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 the, in, the, in these yogic arts also. There is, can be some benefit, but to go beyond yeah, that. Yeah. It's, it's not to see the, you know, the potential of the mind, uh, yeah. but but to see what the real priorities are. The greatest priority is liberation. Uh, Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, I was having a difficult day once at an airport. I'd been delayed, I'd missed a flight, and I was absolutely exhausted. And uh, someone approached me, an evangelical Christian approached me and said, you sure this life's right for you? Because, uh, you know, the Lord, he, he cured everybody. You know, he, he went around curing everybody. Did the Buddha cure anybody? You know, did he go around getting curing people who were sick? He didn't, did he? <laughs> Why not? It's going to happen to us eventually, isn't it? You see the story of Kisa Gotami, what happened when a, a woman who'd lost her baby went to the Buddha completely distraught. And the Buddha said, oh, go and collect mustard seed from every house in the village from whom, where there's never been a death. Uh, so a mustard seed in those days was seen as a kind of special medicine, like magic healing medicine. And so she thought she was going to go and collect healing medicine. She went round all the little houses to find that there wasn't a single house where nobody had died. And so through that process, she was coming to terms with that fact, isn't it?
this would be quite a big one, I think. It's, I mean, someone told me a joke recently. It's an Ajahn Jayasaro joke, apparently, about uh, a woman in China way back whose husband went to war. And before he, before he went to war, he was a perfectly loving, kind husband. And when he came back from war, he was just a complete animal, savage animal. And the woman just didn't know what to do. So she went to the great sage in the village. And the village said, oh yes, the cure for this is a tiger's whisker. So she went out into the forest, tracked the tiger. And found a place where the tiger drank from the pond, climbed up in the tree. And when the tiger, one day when the tiger was drinking, she reached down and boop, grabbed the tiger's whisker and ran for her life. And she went back to the sage and handed him the whisker, same kind of thing, like a medicine. I think it was the medicine. He said, very good. Now you're ready to handle your husband. Because there is something to face here, isn't there? You know, something scary. And so when I have to calm the mind and face with a calm mind something very scary. And from that, we're able to take a medicine away with us. This is what we can all the well-being, a sense of confidence that we can gather through our meditation practice, our confidence in awareness, and we can take to this. But be aware that, yes, of course, people take this too far and they'll try and sell you on an awareness that can cure anything. And Yeah, this is uh, so. Yes, quite often as a meditation teacher, people come to me and they say, "Well, my mind's really calm now. I don't seem to can't seem to get it any calmer, and it's very strong, and I feel a real sense of refuge." But what do I do with this? Well, this is what you do: you take the take that into the body, and you you take it in order to face the body and the things of the body and. The, Face mortality, face anicca. This is what facing anicca is, is facing mortality. Not just watching your mind state come and go. Uh, that's one kind of anicca. But ultimately, you know, this body's going to die, isn't it? That's a much more fundamental form of impermanence than a mind that just comes and goes. So. You, go much deeper like that into your experience. Uh, there has to be a tremendous amount of faith and trust to do that. Uh, 
Uh, if you meet, if you ever meet somebody who's been liberated through this, so someone like Lumpur Liam, who's not a care in the world, absolutely light as a feather. Or Lumpur Lumpur Paniwada, who I met, the same thing. He was sick with cancer. He was 78 years old and knew he was dying. Absolutely light as a feather. No fear whatsoever. So a man who's close to here in a, in a hospice, I was living here before, and a man in a hospice uh, about half an hour's drive away, Cockney guy. He, he got, he asked his daughter for a book about Buddhism one time and got, luckily enough, uh, The Mindfulness of Breathing by Lumpur Buddhadasa. And he, he started getting up every morning to read this book and meditate. He's an ordinary guy, builder. And by the time I met him in the hospice, his mind was absolutely as solid as a rock. There he was, lying there, dying of cancer, and completely light as a feather. I think that's important. <laughs> so people have just walked in, there's any question and answer session. The topic today has been uh, with a body of an animal and with the mind of God is the topic that we're debating today. So just given a talk and now we're asking questions about that. About how we can discover through meditation this uh, kind of our spirit, if you like, a God-like aspect of ourselves, purity of ourselves, the mind, emptiness of mind, and how that can affect us, how important that can become. Just to fill you in. quite a difficult subject in some ways of course you know, mortality comes into this yeah. seeing the impermanence of the body just wanted to ask, do you have any tips for working with people at the end of life? Lots. Yes. yes. I, mean, uh, <clears throat> uh, I think my biggest, my hottest tip on this one is to be relating to people as though they were not their body. Uh, so when you're talking to somebody who's seriously sick, then you ask two questions. How are you? How's your body? Not one question. Uh, and usually I'd start with the second one. So, so uh, okay, how are you, how's your body, first of all? Uh, and then you keep the discussion to that. Uh, this is how the body is. And then, how's the mind? 
then just the way you're discussing that thing is already separating those two things, isn't it? It's different from, how are you? And then inevitably, people will start talking about their body. It might stop them and say, no, 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 I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't meaning that. I was just meaning, well, how's your body? Uh, so it's, that's the most effective way I found of dialoguing with people. Uh, to dialogue as though they weren't their body. And so they see their body as a separate thing from their mind. So you talk about the body on one hand and the mind on the other. But you can get, there can be a trap here that you can get too ambitious trying to teach people in very difficult circumstances. Uh, so this happened with Paul Breiter, who was a disciple of Lumpur Chah, went into hospice work after he disrobed as a monk. And he was all excited about it and asked Ajahn Chah's opinion. And he said, well, it must have been some of the way that Paul Breiter was talking to him. His answer was, well, what difference would it make to you, do you think, if you've got a red-hot iron poked in your side to be handed a lotus flower? What difference do you think that's going to make? <laughs> pointing at the fact that so, very, so often you can go in with a lot of ideas into some field like this and you find yourself with somebody who's in an extremely difficult situation. I can't necessarily think very well or talk very well. So for a matter of being with them and facilitating a process by which they can say how they're feeling, but in a way that, as I said, divides the experiences of body and mind. You ask about one and you ask about the other. Separate thing. You won't be asked, you won't be answered in a question about the body by, with the mind or, other, or the other way around. And people will begin to be able to relate about their condition in a way in which they're seeing those two things are separate. That helps a lot already. And how to take care of yourself in when working in that field? Sort of any tips? Yeah, yeah. This is you have to have practiced yourself, isn't it? I mean, if you've come to terms with your own mortality, then you're really ready. Uh, but that's a, that's a rare thing. So it can be a, you know, it's not an all or nothing thing here. You can be relatively okay with it or have come to terms with it altogether. But if, the more you work on this, the more of a refuge you are. Uh, so most of the work you do, if you, hire, if you sign up as a Buddhist hospice worker, most of the work you do is on yourself and you're not developing concepts about what to do, you're just trying to get yourself into the right space in order to be there for somebody. So the trap is that you develop all kinds of concepts about how people should die, or how I should be with the person who's dying. And yet none of that washes, none of that works. Uh, it's too individual a situation, unique, everyone's unique. So the thing is to be able to be fully present with somebody in that situation and receptive. And you're not there to offer Buddhist dogma, start teaching people Buddhism. 
when they're in a in a position like that, you're able to just open up to to listen to them. There are so many people want to to have things that they need to say, or actually they're wanting to teach you at that particular moment, and tell you what it's really like. Which is, of course, a tremendous privilege, isn't it? To be able to hear that. Thank you. I mean, wonderful experience because you you feel like you're completely on a razor edge, and there you are, right on the edge of life, on the brink, with somebody. Uh, the level of sati that can come around, and my voice that can come around in a situation like that is very high because of the degree of urgency in the situation. Isn't it? That's the positive side. Both with the person caring and the person themselves, the person dying. I mean, right in the moment. Uh, it's the same with discussing death in the meditation circles. You know, people seem to, in my mind, it was talking about how to develop pleasant states of mind, how to avoid unpleasant states of mind. It's just on this superficial level. And it's a washing around there. Whereas you bring up a subject like death and then it really cuts through. So many of the things that people will be talking about, you know, their worries about this or, or something to cut straight through to something much more fundamental. Of course, in some cultures, it's a, it's a difficult thing to do. You know, it's a death, very death-phobic cultures. You start talking about death and people will just clam up completely. It's totally a taboo subject in some cultures. England, actually, interestingly, relatively open. There's a, there's a thing that's started to happen called a death cafe. I don't know if anyone's heard of that. It's a kind of internet thing where people join together in groups and talk about death. Uh, that's just a facilitated group, not with any uh, anything in mind to put over, you know, no, no consolation or information or dogma or anything at all, but just people to be able to open up about how they feel. Uh, anybody? And it's quite successful in England. As interesting research these days it shows that People who think about death in a good way are far happier than people who never think about it. You think about death in the wrong way, then you're unhappier. Think about death in the right way, you're not happier. <laughs> You've dropped something. Think about it in the wrong way and you're hanging on to something like crazy. Maybe time for one more. I don't know how well I've managed to convince you to 
bring the body into your practice? Oh, sure. <laughs> no, it doesn't matter. So, you know, always in these sessions, the way to end is to say, you know, if anything I've said is useful, then please take it away. If anything I've said doesn't seem to be useful, then please just leave it behind. <laughs> I'm not trying to push anything on you. The right way to think. Well, it's, it's more, it's not about thinking, it's about getting your mind into the right space and then introducing the subject or having it introduced. So if you notice the way it works in a lot of monasteries is in Thailand they put skeleton in the monastery so it's always there. And then you, you get yourself into the right space and then death is there for you already, you know, some sign of it. So there's a skeleton in the, in the wall behind here as well. Or you're, here you are in the monastery and you're doing the morning chanting and you start chanting about uh, death, dying. So that's the best way. It's a, lot, it's a lot of preparing the space is what you're doing. Uh, and then preparing the awareness of the body and the space. And you just let them come together when they want to come together. And then you see the body quite automatically as impermanent and let it go. So you're not, you're not thinking about death at all. Uh, what happens if you see your bones? Uh, then you're automatically seeing the impermanence of the body. You don't have to think about that. You see the skull in particular. You don't have to think about death. And the skull is a sign of that, isn't it? So thought's not really there, and thought really shouldn't be there. Uh, thought, thought, try thinking about these things always has a downside. Whereas if you, if you just prepare the space and then you take the body and put it in the space, pop, you let go. Yes, not a real one, it's plastic, I think. It's in the chapel behind the shrine here. So uh, there's also a place where people who die, we lay out the bodies behind here. So if somebody, a devotee of Amravati dies, sometimes they ask for their body to be laid out in the chapel behind here. So we have the body there and we do chanting and so on. So I think we may need to end the people coming to do something else, so I'll just check the audio. But I think that's a good place to end for this afternoon. I hope you've enjoyed it. I uh, hope I've managed to balance the positive and the negative and not gone too, too far one way or the other <laughs> on this one. I wish you all the best with your practice. Hope to see you again. I've got some cards here, or just to give my website, last thing to say, give my website a plug. I've got a website called Open the Sky, all one word. It's a kind of vision of samadhi, opening the sky. Uh, so 
these little cards will give you the address, website address, if you only need a reminder on Open the Sky. I always forget to plug my thing. There you are. 